This evening, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua, and uh, we're going to be reading parts as we've been doing as we look at kind of an overview of the book of Joshua. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the people of Israel entering the land at the beginning of this book, uh, but now I want to look at kind of how they took the land and, and actually some markers that God, that God gave them to not only uh, mark out what he had done for them, but as continual reminders that they would carry with them as they lived throughout the land, those reminders called standing stones. So we're going to read that scripture in a little bit, and then we're going to turn to some other scriptures. So if you just hang on to that, and uh, let's come to God in prayer and ask him to, to help us understand and, and live out his word. Father God, as you have given the people of Israel standing stones to remember what you had done for them and to be a witness to others. We pray that we may seek to be standing stones on your behalf in the lives of our family and in all of those who come in contact with us. Give us insight into how we are to utilize ourselves and other and stories and traditions and other things to, to be witnesses for you and then give us the, ch- the challenge but also the faith and trust to be able to do this in this coming year. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, we've had a Christmas tradition in our family. We started early on giving our children, our two daughters, a Christmas ornament every year for the tree. And um, so each of them got an ornament, Lorinda and I got an ornament, and they were all uh, either the same or from the same category or from the same place. Uh, oftentimes they might have been where we visited over the past year, maybe Disney World in one year, particular year, or, or maybe we went to a certain lighthouse and we bought lighthouse ornaments, or or to Washington, D.C. on a trip out there. Or when I went to Israel, I brought, brought back uh, from Bethlehem some olive wood ornaments and the like. And the whole idea was that they would take their ornament when they left home and they could put it on their tree as they established a new household, which they have done. It was a way for them to remember. Ancient cultures also had ways to remember. And in the land of Canaan, soon to be the land of Israel, they did this with standing stones. Now, the ones you see on the picture here are, are actually in the town, a town in the Shephelah called Gezer. And these are actually pagan standing stones. These were actually stones that were found that were set up in the land where God wanted them to be standing stones and to have their own standing stones. These actually spoke of another God. But what they did was if one of their gods, or so they believed, caused an important event to happen or brought a a significant benefit to them, a stone was erected as a testimony to the action of their God. And if a covenant or a treaty was made between city-states or between individuals, often stones were erected to declare the agreement and to call the gods to witness to it. 
And travelers who saw those stones would know that they should ask, what happened here? And then the people that, uh, that knew the story could give testimony to their gods and the great thing that their God had done that was represented by this standing stone. As Israel entered the land of Canaan and conquered it, God called them to commemorate certain of his actions in the way that their culture understood, through standing stones. Now, I know I've talked in the past about standing stones, but it's a good way, I think, to help us also understand kind of the overview of the book of Joshua. But before we get to that, I just want to remind ourselves why they were in the land, in that land in the first place. For 40 years, they had wandered in the desert, waiting to enter this land. But, but why did God choose Israel as the land where his plan of salvation would unfold? Let's remind ourselves of the importance of the land so we can see the role of standing stones within it. And ask three questions. What, where, and how? First, what? What was this land? Israel was a land that was dependent upon God. Unlike Mesopotamia to the north and Egypt to the south, the northern and southern parts of the Fertile Crescent, where the annual flooding of the major rivers, Nile to the south, Euphrates to the north, all but guaranteed fertile soil and adequate irrigation, Israel was a desert culture. It depended on storms and rainfall, and not very much of that, for the fertility of the soil and and crops for food. So God's people had to depend on him for their survival. And God promised his blessing or his judgment based on their covenant obedience or disobedience, which was often the difference then between rain and having food for a year or drought and having a famine. So the land was dependent on God. It was one that taught faith in him. Where was it? Israel was a land between. It was a land between the northern and southern empires, to the south, Egypt, to the north, uh, a whole string of empires from, from Babylon to Assyria to Persia to Greece to Rome. Empires that had to trade with each other and would go through Israel to do so. So it was a land between, but it was not only between the north and the south. It was also a land between the Arabian Desert to the east and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And so it was kind of a narrow land bridge that connected these empires for trade and also for warfare because if you could control the world trade route, you could control the world, the economy of the world. And so there were often armies marching through Israel. God put his people then in a public place so that the world would come to know them and through them that the world would come to know their God as well. That was God's intention. Isaiah 43, verse 12, You are my witnesses that I am God. 1 Kings 8, 60. He tells them to conduct themselves in such a way that through them, the world may know that I am God. So how? How were they to make use of the land? 
Now, there were witnesses to God in many ways. Obedience to the Torah, celebration of their feasts, their behavior, their, transgress- their transactions with other people, their hospitable treatment of aliens, their uh, refusal to worship idols, all, all kinds of ways. But the very first way God gave them was to make use of the land itself, to allow the land to teach its own story through standing stones. Faith is based on remembering. Our ability to face the future is directly related to our awareness of how God has worked in our lives in the past. God's people took seriously their need to remember what God had done for them by erecting monuments of remembering. Now, we have monuments who go travel around the country, might stop at the Statue of Liberty or go to Washington, D.C. and see the many uh, monuments like the Washington Monument or Lincoln Memorial or, or go out to the uh, further west and see Mount Rushmore or the like. We've got monuments throughout the land. In a similar way, Abraham and Jacob and, and Moses all erected altars and standing stones as monuments to God. Now it was Joshua's turn. Before we turn to those standing stones, though, let me ask you the question, because this is all about where God placed his people. Let me ask you the question for this new year. Why does God have you where he has placed you? And how in this new year are you going to make the most of that? Well, he has the people of Israel in this land of Canaan. And there, Joshua records seven different standing stones in the land. Seven, of course, being the number of of perfection or or completion. And so what I want to do is, is simply kind of work our way through the book of Joshua with the tags that Joshua has given us, the markers that Joshua has given us, these seven standing stones, and and hopefully you can read those on the map. I'll try to to, uh, direct your attention to where we're moving. So I want to start with Gilgal. So find the Dead Sea on the map. And just north of that is Jericho, and then just north of that is a white dot that represents Gilgal. This is roughly the area where they crossed the Jordan River. Crossing the Jordan was... Not, was the only way to enter the land for them, but it was a great obstacle, not just because it was in flood season, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, but since they, the people on the other side of the Jordan believed that the Canaanite god Baal was the god of the water, and so he was actually the one affording them protection. But the Lord repeated the Red Sea miracle bringing them across on dry land, although as we noted a couple of weeks ago, this time they had to take a step of faith first. Because, and then he wanted them to remember that. So look with me to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 9. Joshua 4, verses 1 through 9. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, 
Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Let's just stop there for a moment. So they took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River. I don't know if these stones look different from other stones in the land. You know, you go up to Lake Superior and you pick stones up off the, the beach and they're nicely rounded and almost sanded down and, and certain people in my household like to take them home and, and uh, decorate the, the front with them. In fact, we, uh, when we moved away from our internship in New Jersey, someone picked up this big box and said, little box. It was really heavy. He says, what are there, stones in here? <laughs> I didn't say yes, but there were. <laughs> anyway, it might, they might have been like that. Maybe they weren't special at all, but they were special because they were placed at Gilgal as a reminder of God's power. His power not just to have them cross the Jordan River, but his power over the gods of Canaan, particularly Baal. And remember, Baal is going to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites. They didn't learn this lesson. They needed to visit this monument more often. And and also a reminder that God had given them the promised land. And note the key phrase that keeps showing up with each of these standing stones. It's there to this day. In other words, go take your children on vacation and stop by and tell them, what God has done here. Well, then we're going to just jump a little south to Jericho. After Rahab's intelligence report, they defeated Jericho, and God had asked that Jericho be a first fruits offering to him to show their trust and dependence on God. They were to burn everything, they could take nothing from Jericho. They, everything was to be destroyed as devoted things to God. But a man named Achan saved some of the loot. It looked too enticing to him, violating the covenant. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. So he sees this not just as a simple act of theft, not just an oops. He sees this as a violation of the covenant between God and Israel. And God makes it clear that he would not tolerate covenant breakers. So right at the beginning of moving into the land, he reminds the people he will not tolerate covenant breakers. That's a serious matter. So Achan faced death by stoning. Look at verses 25 and 26 of chapter 7. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them, and over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger, therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or Trouble, ever since. 
So they buried him on our pile of stones, again, there to this day. It would be a reminder to the people that God punishes covenant breakers, that God takes his covenant seriously. Well, then, if you would uh, move to the, to the west, straight from Gilgal to Ai, right in the Judean mountains, we have a third standing stone or group of standing stones at Ai. After a false start due to Achan's sin, they tried to take Ai themselves in their own strength, and they got wiped out because of that sin. Once they took care of the sin in the camp, then God allowed them to finally defeat Ai, and they take another step into the land. Look at chapter 8, verse 28. Joshua 8, verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. So they burned the city, erected a pile of stones over Ai's king at the city gate. A visible reminder of God's covenant faithfulness Even though Achan had been unfaithful, God remains steadfast. He's covenantally faithful. And also a reminder of his power over the cities of Canaan. And then we move uh, straight north, up through the Samaritan Mountains, to one of those mountains called Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal. By now you can see God has brought them deep into the land. And now Joshua stops at Mount Ebal to remind them of their covenant obligations. Look at verses 30 to 35 of chapter 8. Verses 30 to 35. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing at both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including women and children and the aliens who lived among them. So now they pledge themselves to God, they renew that covenant with God, and they set up an altar of uncut stones. This would remind them of their commitment to God. But also, it was a way of of laying claim on the land. Abraham did that early on. He built altars in the land. It's kind of like those old movies you saw where where, uh, the big ship from Europe comes in and and comes to the new new land and and the, the, the explorer comes and stakes the flag of of his country on there to stake a claim to the land. Building an altar was sort of like doing that. It was a reminder that this was God's land, but also a reminder that they were God's people. 
And then head all the way down south again through the Samaritan, Samaria Mountains and the Judean Mountains to Makedah, which is right on the edge of the Judean wilderness and the Shephelah. The Shephelah were the foothills up into the Judean Mountains. For soon they faced their largest threat. As the kings of, of five nations, five city-states, all joined up together to take on the Israelites, and God leads them to victory. And they chased the, the armies and the five kings to Makedah, where the kings hid in a cave. Look at chapter 10, verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25. So Joshua has these guys cornered in a cave, and the, the people, to, he says to the people of Israel, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what God will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they'd been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. So again, they killed the kings. They, they erected another monument of standing stones at the entrance. This would remind the people of Israel of God's power over all the nations, even when they gathered together against him and against them, and of his deliverance of Israel. So now he had pretty much kind of established them to the north and south, the east and west in the land. There are certainly some major gaps, and we'll revisit those and, and the upshot of those when we get to the book of Judges. And then, after a series of mop-up battles and land distribution to the 12 tribes, which is much of the rest of the book, turn with me to chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 24. So after this mop-up battles, after the land's been distributed to all the tribes, the tribes of Reuben and Gad request leave to return to their land across the Jordan, in the Transjordan. You see, Moses had given them land before they ever crossed in, into the land of Israel and said that that was okay for them to be, that would be their land. Now you see um, the word Jordan and the, the dot kind of put, put halfway up of the map uh, by the Jordan Valley, and then across from that, the Gilead Mountains. That area in there was the land of Reuben and Gad. So they probably left their, their families in, um, in, in the land, and they fulfilled their obligation that they had promised to Moses to, at least with all the fighting men, go into the land and help, help the rest of the tribes subdue the land. Now they're on their way home. And they stop along the Jordan River and they erect an altar. But the rest of Israel mistook this for blasphemy against God, like they were going to worship another god with this altar. And so the, the leaders of Reuben and Gad protested this understanding. Joshua 22, verse 24. It says, No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made a Jordan, the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let's get ready and build an altar. But not for offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. 
Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. So they protest. Now, it's actually a claim of loyalty to God. It was their witness, and they actually will name the altar witness. So that Israel, those on the other side of the Jordan, would not forget them and not forget their commitment. There's a reminder to both sides then of their commitment to and unity in God. And then the, the conquest largely comp- accomplished. They settled in the land, and Joshua brings them to Shechem. Joshua brings them to Shechem and uh, challenges them to renew their covenant in God with God. So 20, chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua has the leaders of all the different tribes gathered at Shechem, and he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So they made a commitment to serve the Lord in the land where he had placed them. And then down to verse 25. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak at the holy, near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, This stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to God. So one last standing stone. A standing stone to witness either for or against them. For them if they are obedient. Against them if they are disobedient to God and to his covenant. So, what's the point? Turn back with me to chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, if you would, verses 21 through 24. What's the point of all these stones around the land? Look at how Joshua explains the very first group of standing stones. Joshua 4, verses 21 to 24. He said to the Israelites... In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples on earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Standing stones dotted the land. Israel's not a large place. It's only roughly about the size of New Jersey. I think I once overlaid it on a map over Michigan and and it just barely gets to to the uh, Straits of Mackinac and it's just a sliver kind of up the middle of Michigan and you could fit three or four of them, I think, in the lower peninsula. It's not a large place. So they'd bump into these stones 
at work and at play and when they traveled. That there were seven of them made, meant, meant that the land bore full and complete testimony, seven being the number of completeness, testimony to God of how, God, of how Israel possessed the land, but also, maybe even more importantly, how Israel would remain in the land through covenant faithfulness. So the land shouted its own story. But of course, the people also had a role. They were to teach their children. As their children asked about these stones, they were to teach what God had done in their lives. Tell the stories of God's mighty acts as an incentive for their children to follow the Lord as well. And they were to witness to others, the surrounding nations. The acts of God were public events. The the Canaanites knew about them. The Israelites were to share these stories about the power of Israel's God and point to the fact that he is the only true God. That was their role in the land, and that's how the standing stones helped them fulfill that role. In a sense, we too are to utilize standing stones. Our words, our actions, our lifestyle are the stones that we use to witness to God's work in our lives. As we read at the beginning of the service, Peter uh, reminds us in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, Jesus is the ultimate witness, as John says in Revelation. He is the faithful witness. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a little later, Peter gets at, what does this mean for our lifestyle? And I think these are good marching orders for us in the year 2021. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Imagine, that's exactly what God is saying to the Israelites. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Like the land of Israel shouted the story of God's mighty acts, our lives should shout the story of what God through his son Jesus has done for us. We are the standing stones. And we too are to teach our children through traditions, maybe through rules we establish in our home, through, through stories we tell, what God has done for us as a family, what God has done for us individually, so that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will hear those stories, will see what a difference it made in our lives, and will want to follow and serve Jesus as Lord. And we are to witness to others of how Jesus Christ has powerfully affected our lives to show them by word and example who reigns in our world 
and who reigns in our lives. You know, most of us will never have a monument other than our gravestones erected to our memory. But the greatest monument you can leave is a life lived to and for Jesus Christ. As you think back over this past year, who have been standing stones in your life? As you think back through your past life, who have been those people that have shaped you and moved you toward Jesus? And as you think about this coming year, who can you be a standing stone for? Who must you be a standing stone for? And how are you going to do it? Would you join us in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your, your, the way that you work through history and even through a land to show people who they are intended to be and, and your presence with them. Lord, as we think back to this past year, with all the chaos we've seen, we know yet that you are still with us. And we trust in that for the year to come as well. But we also know that you've called us to a, to a task. You've called us to be standing stones for others, that others might experience that in their lives. We pray that you would help us to do our job well through your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. Would you respond with me by singing together, Church of God, Elect and Glorious, a, a song based on 1 Peter 2 that reminds us of who we are to be as a church and as Christians. Let's stand to sing. Mm-hmm.